0: One of the most puzzling aspects of the Buddhist teaching is the idea and the experience of selflessness. The Pali word for that is anatta. When we start to investigate this idea of anatta or selflessness, so many different kinds of questions arise. If there's no self, who is it that's reborn? Who is it that makes effort? Who is it that experiences different karmic results? If there's no self, who gets angry or who falls in love? Who comes to meditation retreats? What does it mean to say that there's no self, to say that there's no I, no one behind this process? Often people are afraid of this idea, even just in talking about it or thinking about this notion of selflessness, for some people it's frightening. There might be the imagination that when we really deeply understand selflessness, that we might suddenly disappear in some cosmic flash and (laughs) suddenly the hole is empty. (laughs) Or else maybe people have the idea that when we really understand this deeply, it means fading into an undifferentiated mass of glop. (laughs) You know, just something that's science fiction-like. But really the deep understanding of anatta or selflessness, when we, when we understand or come to understand this on deeper and deeper levels, we begin to appreciate that it is the great jewel of the Buddhist teaching. There is a tremendous beauty and freedom in this understanding. And one of the great joys of a long retreat like this, is that it's possible for everyone to begin to get a sense, to begin to get a taste of this radically transformative way of understanding ourselves. Begin to get a taste. There's a whole spectrum of understanding of selflessness and what it means. As the observing power of our mind gets stronger, through the practice, day after day, as this power of mindfulness grows stronger, we begin to discover some very interesting things. We begin to see that we're not who we think we are, that we're not the body. We may have thought that we were the body, and we see that we're not the body. We see that we're not the thoughts that arise. We see that we're not the emotions that are felt. We begin to see that the whole sense of I, the whole sense of self, is a mental concept. It's a mental fabrication We're making up this idea. And when we begin to see this, that it's a story we're telling ourselves, it's both a tremendous surprise and also a tremendous relief. We can really begin to breathe a lot more easily. it is really a relief to realize that this isn't self. And just imagine if it really was. Then we'd have problems. (laughs) So tonight what I'd like to talk about is how the mind creates this deeply conditioned concept. How does it happen that we have this strong belief in the I, this strong belief in the sense of self? And how it becomes possible for us to free ourselves from this illusion? Because this is the great prison. Start with a basic understanding of the nature of the mind. The mind is the faculty of cognizance, It's the faculty of knowing, simple knowing of an object. It's interesting to begin to really examine very directly, look very directly at this nature of the mind. Where is it? Where is the mind? You know, when we look for it, where can we find it? We see that the mind is invisible. We can't see it. It has no color, it has no form, it has no shape, it has no boundaries. And yet the nature of the mind can be known directly, not as some idea or abstraction, but directly in our experience. We can know the nature of the mind as being clear, as being lucid, as being intrinsically pure, because its function is simply to know. We know a sight, or we know a sound, or a sensation, or a thought. To use a somewhat strange example, just to highlight what this nature of the mind is, I don't know if you could imagine yourself a corpse, but perhaps just imagine a corpse. And there's an ear, and there may be sound, but is there any knowing there? There's no knowing going on. All the elements are present except the mind. So if we contrast our experience to that of the corpse, what's added to the... there's still the ear, there's still the sound. But there's something else going on. There's this process of consciousness, of knowing. When we are looking directly at the nature of the mind, the nature of this knowing, the clarity, the simplicity, the purity, the basic awareness of objects, there begins to grow an increasing sense of the everyday mystery of it all. You know, when we're really looking, what is it that knows a sound? What is it that hears? What is it that sees or smells? But somehow this mystery is taking place in every moment, this mystery of knowing, this mystery of cognizance. It's nothing we're doing to make it happen. We can't really take credit for it. It's just the process which is arising in every moment. But the mind is also something more than simply knowing. Knowing is the main faculty. It's the faculty of cognizance. But there's something else going on in the mind. And that is that in each moment of experience of knowing different things whether sight or sound or sensation or thought, in each moment of knowing, there's also an array of different mental factors or, or mental qualities which are arising in that moment of knowing. And those factors color the consciousness. very simple to experience them. Greed is a mental factor. Hatred is a mental factor. Fear is a mental factor. Love, wisdom, compassion, concentration, mindfulness, effort. All of these are qualities or factors of mind arising in different combinations, in different moments. And we can see how each of these factors color the mind. Some of them are wholesome, some of them are unwholesome, some are neutral. When mindfulness is present, it works in a certain way. When anger is present, it works in a certain way. Okay, so there's the natural purity, there's the natural clarity of the knowing faculty. And there's a whole variety of different mental factors which keep arising in different combinations. Now one of these mental factors, there's one in particular, which when it arises out of balance with the others, is what keeps us imprisoned in this conventional notion of self, of I. And so it's important to understand how this factor is doing that because it's conditioning something that is extremely powerful in our lives, creates a very strong prison for us, unless we understand it. And it's a mental factor which was mentioned early in the retreat in a different context. It's the factor of perception. Now, perception has a particular function, just like greed has the nature to cling, and anger has the nature to condemn, and concentration has the function to stay steady, and mindfulness to notice. Perception has the function to pick out the distinguishing marks of an object so that it recognizes it and remembers it. So we see a certain color, we we know, we perceive it to be yellow or red or blue, that's the factor of perception. We see somebody and we recognize them as a man or a woman, that's the factor of perception. Picking out the distinguishing marks of an object so that we can remember what that object is. When perception arises along with mindfulness, when it arises in balance with mindfulness, then the perception serves to frame the object, we recognize it clearly, so that the mindfulness then can experience it in a deeper way. So in those situations, perception is actually serving the practice. And it's what we talked earlier about in its role of the mental noting. That's what the perception is doing. It recognizes what's present. It frames it in the service of mindfulness, in the service of investigation. But a very big problem arises when there is strong perception without mindfulness. And as you probably have noticed over these last weeks, that's not an uncommon situation in our lives. There's often strong perception without mindfulness. And it's precisely that occurrence which creates the sense of self. Because when there's perception without mindfulness, we remember only the surface appearance of things. Because that's what perception recognizes. It recognizes the surface, the appearance, the distinguishing marks. And then we solidify this recognition with many different kinds of concepts. And so we get solidified in our concepts about the surface of things, because mindfulness is not present to enable us to look deeper. Just as an example of this, a very common example which I think reflects most of our experience has to do with how we relate to different people that we meet, especially people we know well we meet them, we know them, we recognize them, we form certain concepts based on our recognition. When we meet them again, are we actually able to see them with a beginner's mind? Are we able to see that person new, with freshness? Or are we carrying over a very strong attachment to all the concepts which we created because of our perceptions of them. You now, we put people in boxes. Oh, yeah, I know, I know who that person is. You know, we, we have this very strong sense of who and how a person is. We get attached to that concept, and it becomes a prison. It becomes a confinement. It's very difficult to keep mindfulness there with perception, so that we recognize the person, we don't forget who they are, but actually be able to experience them with some depth each time, not to stay on the surface of our recognition. This takes some training. It's the same with any repetitive experience. We get familiar with an experience Our perception recognizes it and then we think we know it. And so we lose the impetus to be mindful in the future. We see it with the breath. I know what the breath is like. I've seen it thousands, tens of thousands of times. We form an idea, yeah, I know the breath. And because we, yeah, that's the in-breath, that's the out-breath. We know it. We recognize it. We can put a label on it. But without mindfulness, we're staying just on the surface of that experience and actually missing what it really is in that moment. We don't see the uniqueness of that moment's experience because we're carrying over an old concept based on perception. We do it with thoughts. We do it with emotions. We do it with all parts of our experience. We recognize it. Oh, yeah, I know that. And because of that superficial recognition, we don't actually experience it more deeply and more fully. We don't really know it in that moment. There's a story which I've mentioned in a couple of talks which I just like so much, so I'll repeat it here as well. It's just a very uh, pointed example, you know, of of this situation, of how our concepts about things, our surface recognition, keeps us from seeing things in a new way. And it's, it's the story of a friend of mine who had a young boy in school, you know, who was, I don't know, six or seven years old he was in class and his teacher asked, you know, what color is an apple? And everybody in the class said red, and he said white. And the teacher looked at him and said, you're wrong, you know, apples are red, and maybe sometimes they're green, but they're not white. And he insisted that an apple is white, and she insisted, or he insisted that it's (laughs) red. And it got to be a very (laughs) unpleasant situation. Really, of course, when you cut an apple open, it's white. It's not red. You know, and the, the young boy was, was talking about the apple from the inside, not from the outside. It's not the usual way we would, we would respond, but it's actually a deeper way of responding. And it, was just, it just struck me, the sadness of it. You know, of, of how, whether it's teachers or parents or ourselves, you know, how we just limit our experience of the world through an attachment to a surface recognition, when we're not mindful enough to look deeper. Okay, So there's the mind, the knowing faculty, consciousness. That is pure. That is lucid. That is clear. It's simple knowing of an object. Then there are all of the different mental factors which arise in different moments of consciousness which color that purity or lucidity in different ways. One of these being the factor of perception, which recognizes the surface appearance of things. Take a breath. There's one perception one very deeply habituated perception we have about the world, and about ourselves, which is the origin of very many inaccurate conclusions. There's one perception we have which is held very deeply in most of us, which keeps us from a deep understanding and realization of what is true, from a deep realization of the Dhamma. And that is the perception we have and the perception we hold of the solidity of things. In our normal life, in our normal way of being in the world, we take things to be solid. And our language, the language we use, simply reinforces this, makes it even stronger, stronger conditioning in us. I'd like to read you something from, it's a book by one of the editors of The Inquiring Mind, Wes Nisker wrote this wonderful book called Crazy Wisdom. This is just a little excerpt about this very point. He says, A Buddhist aphorism cautions us against missing the moon because we focused on the finger pointing at it. We might also take care not to miss the moon by assuming that today's moon is the same as yesterday's. The moon, too, is a process. Our language behaves as though reality was solid. On the simplest level, it positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as something less than real. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, the nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. I like that part a lot about subject and object, which are quite real, surrounding a verb which somehow seems a little more amorphous on the scale of reality. And to understand that things are actually just the reverse. As long as this perception of solidity is there, as long as we're living our lives with this perception of things, it prevents us from a deep and integrated realization and understanding of impermanence. We can know it intellectually. We can know that things are changing with our intellects. But in order to actually transform our understanding, we have to know it experientially. We need to see the momentary nature of phenomena within ourselves. So then the question arises, why do we have this perception of solidity? If everything is changing, everything is momentary phenomena that the moon is a process, not an object. Why is it that we and the rest of the world are so caught in this perception of the solidity of things? It's interesting to see how this is created. One reason that we have this perception is because of the rapidity of change. Things, many things are changing so rapidly that we don't see it. It's faster than our rate of perception. A very simple example is that, you know, every time we go to the movies, we get lost in the story, in the drama, in what's happening on the screen. But what's actually happening is separate frames moving so quickly we don't see it if we could really see the separate frames one after the other it's unlikely we would get very caught up in the story. And we're really living our lives as if we're at the movies. We've created movies for ourselves because we're not seeing the momentary nature of phenomena. It's going too fast. On an even more subtle level you know just electric current creating a light it's not one thing it's not solid it's a current of tremendously rapidly changing elements nature the the ultimate nature of the atoms the cells you know the electrons all the particles it's all moving tremendously quickly but we don't see it And so it's because of the rapidity of change that's one reason we misperceive things to be solid. One of the great openings in practice is that we begin to refine our perception, the speed of perception, so that in our own experience, we begin to open to these very rapid levels of change. So it's one reason that we don't see. It's one reason we get caught in the idea of solidity, because of the rapidity of change. Another reason we get caught is that we look at things from a distance. We're not trained to observe very closely. And when we look at things from a distance, again we don't see the changing nature. As I was reflecting on this, I was just thinking of a few very, again, very simple examples. And I was reminded of being in the desert in Yucca Valley, in California, where we teach often in the spring. And when you look at the desert from a distance, it just seems like nothing's going on. You know, It's very still. It's very empty. There's not much there. But when we look closely, there is an amazing amount of activity going on, which is easily missed if we don't look closely, we don't see it. Or just looking out my window this afternoon, looking off into the distance, you you see the trees in the distance and they look motionless. And yet when we come close, when we look closely, every leaf on every tree is in movement. You look even closer, you can can bring it right down to the microscopic. And so we need to learn how to observe phenomena closely in order to see the nature of change. It's the rapidity of change that keeps us locked into the idea of solidity. It's observing from a distance, that keeps us locked in to this perception. and There's a third reason that we're so conditioned by this belief. And the third reason is that we very often don't see the composite nature of phenomena. We don't see that all phenomena are actually made up of parts and elements in relationship to one another. There's a classic example from the Buddhist time, which I'll just update a little bit. He used the example of a chariot and used the example of a car. We have the idea of a car as an existing thing and there's a, a familiar perception, recognition. When we look closely, what is a car? Is a car the wheels? Is it the chassis? Is it the engine? Is it this? Is it that? No. No one of those things is the car. The car is a composite. The car is a relationship of all of these different parts put together in a certain way and functioning in a certain way because of the relationship. But there is no entity in and of itself, self-existing entity called car. There's no car. There's no house. There's no body. This? What is the body? It's just like the, there are a lot of different elements going on. There's no self-existing thing called the body. No person, no self. It's all composite. But because we don't see it carefully, most people in their lives don't take time to investigate, to examine, okay, what it is, what is it that we call a car? What is it that we call a body? What is it that we call a self? Very few people take the time to really investigate. Mostly we're satisfied with the surface perception, the surface recognition, yeah, that's a car. This is a body. This is a self. And so we stay just on the surface and we miss something that's very crucial. To begin to see this in any one aspect begins to reveal the composite nature of all things in the world. Begin to see the composite interdependent nature of elements. And this is the beginning of loosening the grip of this perception of solidity. When the perception level is stronger than the mindfulness, It recognizes the appearance of things, and then it solidifies the sense of that object through concepts about it. We create concepts based on the appearance of things. We create concepts and ideas of car. Car is a concept. It's an idea we've created, or house, or body, or self. And yet none of these things exist in and of themselves. They are the product of perception. They are the product of our conceptual thinking. And so to begin to see how we create ideas and concepts. And often they're useful ones. I'm not suggesting that we don't do this these concepts are useful in our ordinary interaction. But to see how we create them for things which are not there, not self-existing in and of themselves, and then how we become attached to and identified with these concepts. This is the process that we're engaged in and which is so much of a prison for us. I'd like to just give a few examples of how we do this, of how we create concepts and ideas, then get attached to them and live our lives in those contractions. Over the summer, Sharon and I were teaching in Germany very close to what used to be the border between West Germany and East Germany. Of course, Now the border is gone. The people uh, who were running the center where we were teaching took us over into what was then East Germany. And it was so interesting because we passed what used to be the border. You could still see the remnants of it, you know, and the buildings and some of the towers. and, And to realize that a very short time ago, That concept was so strong and so much reality invested in it that people were killed if they tried to cross the border. Yet we went now and the illusory nature of the border was so obvious. Some idea changed in people's minds and this heavy-duty reality which resulted in so many lives being lost... The reality changed when the idea changed. This concept of place that we hold so strongly, which has such immense consequences. It's only a construct, it's only an idea in people's minds. And if you think that we don't share in that belief, that it's only politicians, Imagine how you would feel if you came into the hall and somebody was sitting in your place. It would probably be a little traumatic. This is my place. We stake out a territory, create a concept about it, and then defend it. Okay, so this is one kind of concept, you know, which has many, it has many examples. An even stronger one, which we create, which, in more pervasive ways, influences our lives, is the concepts, the concepts of past and future. How much of our lives do we spend lost in these ideas of past and future? You should have a very good idea of that by now. (laughs) It's astounding. I mean, most of our thoughts are about the past or about the future. And yet, what are they? What is the reality of past and future? The reality of them is that they are a particular kind of thought in the moment. How else do we experience it? How else do we experience the past? Except as a kind of thought arising in the mind. Or image arising. How do we experience the future? The only way that we ever experience it is as a thought or an image arising just in the moment. And yet we don't see it. We have become so attached to this concept which we have created around these categories of thoughts. It's like we've created this reality of past and this reality of future, and we're living our lives staggering under the burden of them. I'm sure you have a sense of this. It's impossible to sit and watch the mind and not get it. You know, how much of the time are we lost? We're we're lost in the intensity and the drama and the involvement and the whatever because we take this idea, we take this concept which we've created to be real. It is tremendously freeing. Very immediately. This is not something that takes... 40 years of practice to get. It's just, we just need to wake up to see, yes, all we experience of the past, it's a particular thought in a particular moment. That's all it is. All we experience of the future is a thought in the moment. The thoughts themselves have very little weight. The only weight they have is when we invest in them the reality of this concept. And to see that, just to see that, is a tremendous unburdening. We can just kind of sit back, relax. Different thoughts will come. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. It doesn't matter. The thoughts themselves are very, very light. They're very momentary. The Buddha talked at one time of different dangers or obstacles to concentration of what actually keeps our mind from being concentrated. And we know, we know that it can be quite difficult, why? He said that two of the biggest obstacles, the things that prevent us from simply being concentrated, is being lost in past, being lost in future. And I I think it's very clear. This is the major thing that keeps us from actually being mindful in the moment. And the force of it is our attachment to the concept. We believe it. So it's tremendously insightful, tremendously freeing, really to see clearly what's going on to see that past and future are ideas and that our experience of it is a simple thought right now. Just as a little exercise over the next days, the next time you're lost in some drama or other, Look to see whether that drama is conditioned by this notion of past or future. And it will be a very good indication of how we live our lives. Okay, so there's the concept of place, there's the concept of past and future, there's another concept which again tremendously conditions how we're living. And that's all of the concepts we have about self-image and role. You know, we see it in the world and we see it on retreat. What kind of self-images do we create? What kind of ideas about ourselves do we create? Our presentation to the world, to other people. And we all have sort of a wide range of presentations You know, self-image that we might think, whatever, you know. We're very clever, or we're very stupid, or we're very brave, or we're cowardly, or we're good, or we're bad, or whatever. We've all created this package, you know, of a self-image, of a presentation. And they're all ideas. They have nothing to do with anything. But because we don't see it happening, we don't see it actually arising in the moment we get caught. It's as if we pour ourselves into a mold and then we feel constricted and wonder why. It happens on retreat a lot. All kinds of images arise in the mind of good yogi and bad yogi. There are so many stories. <laughs> you know. um, what's really happening in any moment is very simply knowing and an object. That's all. There's knowing of a sight, of a sound, of a smell, of a taste, of a sensation, of a thought. That's all. There's consciousness in an object, arising, passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. That's what is going on. Where does good yogi and bad yogi and I'm terrible, I can't do this or I'm great. and All of that is extra. All of that is just concepts in the mind and we badger ourselves with them. Really look to see this whole process of self-judgment, which is common. It's, it's such a common conditioning in us all. And I think it's more common in the West than in Asia. I think it's, it's very particular to our culture. The self-judgment is all coming out of some idea we have of ourselves, some self-image. And it's all a creation. It's not really there. Concept of place, of time, of self-image, of role. The next one is not something we understand as being a concept at all. The body. Well, we can see the past and future are just thoughts, and we can see self-images are just thoughts, but this clearly is not a thought. (laughs) (laughs) The sensations are not thoughts, but the idea of body, that is a concept, that is an idea. What is the body? The body is like car. The body is like house. There's no thing called body. I had a very interesting example of this. A friend of mine had last year had an operation for a fibroid tumor, and they did it. It was a laser operation. It was the technology is fantastic. They go in with this tiny little incision. And with a laser camera, the surgeon is actually looking at a video screen, you know, and manipulating the the scalpel um, by watching the screen. And they made a video of the whole operation from the inside. And so afterwards, we're looking at this person, this friend, from the inside. If one had some notion of this being the body. Of what we normally take to be the body and the appearance, it was very strange. <laughs> because it's like we were, we were all on the inside of the organs and the blood and the guts and the flesh, and it was both disgusting <laughs> and also beautiful. I mean, it was just, it was an amazing, it was an amazing uh, new perception of what the body is. Just like all of those other concepts, the composite nature. What we call the body is a lot of different elements. It's a lot of different parts, all working and functioning in an interdependent way. I'd like to do a little experiment now. For you and this. This is really this is magic. This is really a magic trick. It is It's amazing. To me it is totally amazing. Okay, just just sit and maybe close your eyes for a moment. and just very slowly stop moving one of your fingers. And just stop feeling the movement. So first of all is the magic of how the finger actually starts to move simply because there's some, something is going on in the mind. So there's something which is causing the finger to move. That's, that's the first magic. Okay. So then it's moving and just feel the movement. Just really feel the sensation of the movement. See how subtle you can get in your awareness. Just very slowly. When you're just with the sensation of movement, what happens to the notion of finger? There's no finger. There's no sensation called finger. We don't feel the finger. Finger is an idea, finger is a concept. Just as there's no finger, apart from concept, there's no hand, there's no arm, there's no back, there's no chest, there's no legs, there's no body. All of those are concepts. It's not what we are actually experiencing moment to moment. What we are experiencing are the play of sensations. The play of these sensations are not in a particular form. And one of the experiences in practice, which at first people get a little uneasy about, but actually come to enjoy, is the real dissolution of the form of the body in our experience, that we're experiencing it in a formless way, that it's just this flow of elements. From that perspective, there's a tremendous weakening of our attachment and identification to the body. Because we see that body is just an idea, it's just a concept. Okay, the last of the concepts which I want to mention, and it's the one which is at the root of it all, the root of suffering, the root of contraction, is the concept of self. Just like we create the idea of past or future, or create the idea of body, or image, or role. We create this idea of self. Not seeing that what we call self is a constellation of different changing elements. But what happens is we rely on the surface recognition. We look in the mirror every morning. Yep, that's Joseph again. <laughs> it looks more or less the same every morning. Although over 10 years, one does notice some differences. <laughs> and so we get beguiled by that surface recognition And we lay a concept, we lay this perception, Joseph, self, that's me. And unless we're really mindful of what is going on, we stay right at that level, and then we get attached to this notion that there is someone there, just as we get attached to the notion of the body as an existing thing. The self in the same way is just this interplay of mental elements and physical elements, and they're all working together. And there is a certain appearance, but there is no thing, no entity, which we can point to and say, yes, that's who I am. Because any element we point to, it's gone in a moment because all of these elements are so rapidly changing. a lot more. <laughs> and, um, try to abbreviate it. So the first reason, the first reason that we get caught in this concept of self is we don't carefully see the composite nature. We just see the surface recognition and we're satisfied with that. We're not looking more deeply at the interplay of elements, the interplay of parts. So a great deal of our practice is really to bring some deep mindfulness so we're seeing exactly what's happening in each moment of experience different sensations, different kinds of thoughts, of emotions, of sounds, of sights. These are all the pieces which when put together in certain patterns we're calling self. So we begin to discriminate very clearly and accurately what is actually going on. There's a second reason that we get caught with the sense of self. Actually, I think I'm wait on this because it's, there's a lot. There's a lot here. Um, keep you in suspense. <laughs> Through the practice of a very careful and sustained awareness, we can really begin to see what the nature of our experience is free of concept, free of ideas. So we're not out of balance with the perception. We're not simply caught in the surface recognition. We're beginning to look deeper at the actual constituency of elements, of what it is that we're calling self, what it is that we're calling I. And as we do that more and more carefully, this whole notion of self, this notion of I, is recognized as an idea. We become much more, we rest much more in the flow of phenomena. One of my teachers used a wonderful phrase which resonated for many years in my practice he's sitting and I would just come again and again, he would say, what we call self, what we call I, is simply empty phenomena rolling on. And so really, if we can sit back, just let the empty phenomena roll on. Empty meaning empty of self, empty of self-existence. It's all just coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. We can relax into that process. I'd like to close with a, with a very short Chinese poem, which is a wonderful expression of the realization of no self by the poet Lee Po. He wrote, We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit alone, the breath in me, thoughts in me, emotions in me, until only the breath remains. Only the thoughts remain. Only the emotions remain. We take ourselves out of it. (laughs) Much nicer. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org